0: Welcome to Missionary Roundtable with your host, Cale Horvath. Welcome back to Missionary Roundtable. So glad that you guys join us again this week as we continue to talk about the Great Commission, foreign missions, and the part that we each should play in the Great Commission that Jesus Christ gave us uh, as followers of him. And so this week we've got another missionary on, a special guest that I'm really excited to introduce to you guys. His name is Will Lyon. Will has been a missionary in Ecuador for 10 years uh, he ministers in northern Ecuador with his family in a village, uh, which is awesome, and we're going to talk about village ministry a bit today as well. Um, but let's just get right to it. Will, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Uh, thank you for having me, Cale. I really appreciate it.
0: Um, I met you uh, several years ago. I, I'm not sure how long it's been now, maybe five, six years ago at a missions conference at our church, and uh, it was really neat when you came to our church. Uh, you, I don't think you were raising support. Uh, maybe you were just back— uh, well, you weren't on deputation, I don't think, but you were just you maybe maybe mm-hmm. doing rounds, meeting new churches and raising support. Um, and when you came to our church and kind of said what you did uh in your field, everybody was kinda like, Oh man, we we gotta support this guy. This is awesome.
1: <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, we uh we were on a on a short short furlough and uh yeah, we had met met your pastor through through a mutual friend and the Lord just opened the door. We loved being at your church, we loved getting to know your people. <laughs>
0: Oh, we love getting to know you too. And, um, I believe if I'm not mistaken, so Jeff used to volunteer, uh, Bartel, our pastor, I uh, used to volunteer on a mission board. It, is that, is that the, the way that you connected? Where, aren't you through that vision board or mission? Yes.
1: Board? Uh, yes. It's called Daystar, And that's, uh, my, my mentor was the president of the mission at that time. And a, and a friend of Jeff's, uh, his name is Doug Hodges. Mm. And so he, he connected us.
0: Oh, awesome. Very cool. Uh, so yeah. Why don't you, um, I wanna let you introduce like, you know, your field and, and what you're doing and, and and really just like a brief story of how you got there. You know, how did God take your life and and direct you in a way that it led you to the international mission field? But uh why don't you introduce us a little bit um just like where where are you from? Where's your where's your home church? Where's what state are you from?
1: Okay. Yeah, once again I appreciate you having me on here, Cale. It really means a lot to me that you'd uh you'd call me and let me be a part of this. We um I am from originally from the Carolinas. I, I moved a lot when I was a kid. My dad, uh, because of his work, we moved around a lot, but primarily there in the Carolinas along the coast. And when I was when I was about thirteen, my dad surrendered to preach and I was the youngest of, of four children. So he was he was in his mid forties when he surrendered to preach. Wow. And so at that point we we moved to Florida. My dad went to a Bible college there in Florida and uh and then a few years later I went back to the same Bible college I went. I went with the idea that I knew God wanted to, to use me in ministry in some way. I was scared to death of preaching, so I was basically open to anything except preaching. And uh, But, of course, the Lord, you know, he, he ruined <laughs> that. He called me into preaching anyway. But I went there. My first year in college, I was I had a kind of a general degree. I, I didn't really know exactly what what I was going to be doing. But there was a, a day I went out with a couple of missionaries. I went out to lunch with a couple of guys that I knew. And I was sitting there at the table, and they were talking about missions and one guy was in Trinidad and the other guy was in the Philippines and they were talking about their ministries and I was sitting there I remember thinking to myself never at one point in my entire life have I ever thought that I should consider going to the mission field hmm. and I don't know I don't know why I'd never thought that before uh you know I'd been in church my entire life I'd been around missionaries my entire life but it never it was never personal until yeah. I was sitting at that table and it just it just hit me man I really should think about this and it was literally just within a, within a couple of weeks, I couldn't stop thinking about it, praying about it. I talked to a few guys that really helped me uh, understand, you know, how God calls people, how God leads people, uh, specifically to the mission field. And it was really just through that that I, I surrendered my life. And I told the Lord, you know, whatever you'd have for me, I'm willing to go uh, wherever that would be. Yeah. And I had, a, I had a heart, even back then, I had a heart for remote missions, uh, remote peoples. And so and the Lord just used that and directed us. Uh, we, we came to Ecuador originally because my wife and I, when we were engaged, we had to take a missions trip for our, um, for our degree where we were studying mm. and she had a, she had a missionary from her home church. She's from Savannah, Georgia.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And from her church, there was a missionary who had been in Ecuador for many years. And, you know, we didn't necessarily have a calling for Ecuador at that time. It was just, there was an open door. So we went to Ecuador uh, mm-hmm. we spent about a month. This was back in, back in 2005. Yeah, and it was really just through that trip that God uh, really broke our hearts for the the Ecuadorian people and for the need that was here. It was a few yeah. years later that God directed us specifically to the people group that we're with right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was really just through that trip that God opened the doors and opened our hearts uh, to mm-hmm. you know give our lives here and to serve here for as long as we could be here.
0: That's awesome. I there's a a quote that I refer to a lot. I've written in my Bible. Um, uh, a man—he's now passed. His name was uh, Doctor Clifford Clark, and he's the father of a of a missionary that we support in uh, in Colombia, named Paul Clark. And uh, what he used to say was, "Not every missionary is called to be, or, or not every Christian will be called to be a missionary, but everyone should struggle with the possibility." And it sounds so simple, but it's like what, like you just said, what missionary ever became a missionary without first thinking, "Hey, I wonder if I should be a missionary." You know, it's, it's very, you know, it's not as mysterious as we make it out to be Sometimes It's like, man, maybe you should just consider if God would have you to do this thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and
0: then, uh, and then you just had an open door to go visit a country. You saw the need, mm-hmm. it, it burdened you, it broke your heart. And then, uh, and then God paved the way for you to, to do it. it. It sounds like I'm just summarizing what you said.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You said it right. I think sometimes we almost make the the calling of God specifically into missions. We almost make it kind of mystical, and like, it, like you have to have some kind of a clear vision right from the beginning. And and I don't I don't believe it's really that way. You know, you see Paul in his missionary journeys. He went out and really the Holy Spirit led him from place to place. Mm. Uh, but really what God expected from him was was surrender and being willing yeah. to go. And really the Lord led from there. And that's what that's what I want to try to do.
0: Yeah. And when he wanted to go somewhere and God didn't want him to go there, he told him, don't go there. Like, <laughs> I think that's one of the best parts is right. that guys <laughs> right. who sur- want to surrender to missions, they're looking for the where immediately, but it's more like, why don't you just go and obey the Lord? And if he doesn't want you to go there, he'll make it clear. Like, rather Literally. than <laughs> rather than waiting for God to tell you where to go, how about you just prepare to go? And then mm-hmm. uh, if God doesn't want you to go there, he'll shut it down.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
0: But, uh, but he didn't shut it down. And you've been in Ecuador for now almost 10 years. Um, and, and really you have an interesting story because if anyone is listening to this and maybe they haven't taken like a missiology class and they're, uh, Bible Institute or their, the, you know, the advanced discipleship their church may offer, if they haven't done anything with missions, typically when you start talking about strategy of, of going to countries or people groups is, is, you know, is, is another buzzword people groups, you know, and, in, in uh, missions today, um, typically the, the easiest strategy and it, and it, and it's a good strategy. It's not wrong. It's go where the people are. And so you hear about people saying, Hey, if you don't know where to go, when you have that country just go to a city start there and then you know if god leads you somewhere else that's fine but most of the people are in the city um you're not in the city in ecuador uh you're you're in a village uh would you mind just kind of sharing some of your story and how god opened the doors for you to move to the village uh how god confirmed that and 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 what you're doing there
1: yeah absolutely i'd i'd love to share it's uh you know it's a long story there's a lot of lot of aspects to it and i'll try to I'll try to condense as much as no, I can, dude, Don't condense. The, um... Wait,
0: do it. This, uh, <laughs> we love stories. If people are listening to a podcast, they want to listen to something interesting. So go for it. Right. Okay.
1: I got you. Well, we we originally surrendered to to go to the area that we're in right now while we were still living in the states. Right when we were first beginning the idea of of joining with a mission agency and raising support and getting everything in order, uh, God through a through a series of events led us to have a desire for the people in Northern Ecuador. Now we had never been to Northern Ecuador. We knew nothing about it. Uh, it was just literally through prayer and talking to people, God led us you know, to, the, to this area, to this desire to go to Northern Ecuador. And so we, we began the process of raising support. We began going to these churches and we would tell churches everywhere we went, God's called us to Northern Ecuador. Uh, we wanna plant churches. We want that to be a focus of our ministry. We've never been there. We don't know anything about the people who are there. We just have a desire to go there, <laughs> and it was it was scary. Uh, some of those churches took us on for support, and I, I really, looking back, I wonder what they were thinking. We, just, <laughs> right, we, right. we didn't offer much. You know? <laughs> They're like, you know, "All right, sounds great." They,
0: <laughs> right, right, sure,
1: we'll give you money. We, I mean, they just they just trusted the Lord, and that's what we were that's trying awesome. to do, I guess. Amen. But we um, we went to a church, and to make a long story short, we went to a church. It was it was actually an accident. When we showed up at the church, the pastors, you know, said basically, who are you? We didn't, they didn't even mean to invite us. It was a, it was a, it was a mistake. Oh, wow. But w- when we got there, it basically they said, you, you can, you can stay. We won't be able to support you. It was from, it was actually a denominational church. It wasn't even a church that would that normally supports missionaries. Mm-hmm. But like I said, long story short, when we presented our ministry at the church that night, I said the same thing. You know, we're, God's called us to a place we've never been. We don't know anyone there, but we have a desire to, to preach the gospel in that area. Mm-hmm. And after the service, there was a, a missionary, veteran missionary who was in the country of Venezuela. And he came up to our table and he asked me, he said, have, have you ever heard of the Quichua people in northern Ecuador? And at that point, I had never heard the word, knew nothing about that people group. And I told him, I said, no. He said, let me, let me show you something that's on my table. And right there on his table, there was a magazine of, that his mission agency put out. And it was listing the 10 largest unreached people groups in South America. And basically in the magazine, it was talking about people who are a people group who is less than 2% evangelical Christian wow. with no active church planning or no active missionaries. It's kind of the way they, the way they defined it. Mm-hmm. And right on the front cover of that magazine was a picture of a Quechua lady in the area that we're serving right now. And they were listed as one of the one of the 10 largest unreached people groups in South America. Hmm. And he told me, he said, you, you said tonight that God's called you to the exact same area where these people are. And right on the front, there was a little map of Ecuador, and this little tiny area was outlined, and it was the exact same area that I had been praying for that I had you know, mentioned to the church that night. Hmm. And he told me, he said, "We for 20 years, our mission agency has tried to get missionaries into this area, and we've never been able to do it. It's never worked out. He said, you ought to pray about going there, going to this people group. He said, I just, I just believe this is what God has for you. Oh, wow. And I'm i just sitting there looking at this magazine, looking at my wife, looking at this magazine, thinking to myself, "This this can't be real. This can't be true." <laughs> and it and in that moment, there was just this peace and this understanding. And God told me, "This is exactly why we have led you to this uh, to this area, and it's wow. to reach this people, this people group." And so at that point, we we went on to the rest of the churches. Hey, God's called us to this specific a people group. Oh, wow. So and you just
0: by faith, it was like, okay, this is what we're doing. And and when you're on yeah, deputation, yeah. you just started saying from then on out, like, this is where we're going to.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this wow. is it. Man,
0: praise <laughs> the Lord. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. It was a um, I mean, it was a mess. It was scary, but there was this, this peace through the entire thing. This is, this is what God wants. And uh, it was exciting. You know, hmm. I went to the first churches confused, but from that point on, there was just this peace. I know what God's called us to do.
0: You know, and, is um, in that like not even to sidetrack the conversation, but to speak on deputation a little bit because we we we're finishing that right now and getting to the field this year, Lord willing. But like a lot of the young people that I've encountered at churches who want to do missions, their questions are always, "So how do you do deputation?" Like, because it's this like ambiguous thing that we don't really have like a ten step plan for, and uh, it's so <laughs> funny that you said like at the beginning I didn't know what I was doing and then I kind of figured it out. It's like that's. Kind of deputation in a nutshell. No idea what I'm doing. Call and email and pastors. You don't know me, but would you be interested in supporting us? And and then you kind of figure out your groove as you go. Which is which is kind of sounds like what you were saying happened for you.
1: Yes, absolutely. That's exactly that's exactly how it is.
0: (laughs) And maybe even got some more clarity on exactly what you were even going to do in the process.
1: Exactly, yeah. I I updated our info packet that we sent to churches about a hundred times during the
0: deputation process. (laughs) Well, and you – what year were you doing deputation? About when was that?
1: 2009 and 2010.
0: Okay, so you were still sending out uh, a lot of physical uh, missionary info packets too.
1: Yes, yeah, it was right before. We didn't have smartphone. Boom, we didn't have anything it was right gotcha. before all that came
0: out <laughs> man i tell you what i've only sent out a couple it's it's more of like now just email and pdfs it's funny how that things change over the uh, <laughs> the years but yeah, all right i'm sorry <laughs> i sidetracked it but uh so going back to so you you, you now feel like you've got some more clarity i want to go to this i want to go to this village this unreached by the way we're not going to but we could sidebar on just you know how even the apostle paul said i i want to go where there's no you know no man has laid a foundation before and the uh Man, really, the conviction we should have for reaching on people who are unheard, who haven't heard the gospel, and so you get you catch that fire and and find a people group that you want to go to in the country that you felt God was leading you towards. Um, So, when you actually raise your support and you're going and you're landing on the field, what did that look like? Did you did you land in a city for language learning? Did you um, did you just go straight to that village in the beginning? How did you how did you breach a village's small? you know, political and cultural barriers to for for them to even allow you to come in because a village is a lot different than a city. You can't just move there and be like, "I'm here now." Like they oh. they almost got to like let you come there, don't they?
1: Right, right. That, yeah, that was quite a process. Um, That's a, that's a great question. It's really the it's something I, I love to talk about. Is I've never seen God work in a more tangible way than in the way He opened the doors for us to to not only move into the village, but I mean, even to find these villages, they're not even on maps. Wow! And it's just unbelievable the way that God worked it all out. But we, if, if you kind of fast forward through the whole process, we spent two years raising support. We left, we went to, to Costa Rica first to be able to study Spanish. And so we spent a year there. And even while I was there, my heart was, I don't, I don't even want to learn Spanish because I want to learn Quechua. I want want to learn that (laughs) first, but but Spanish is the language of Ecuador. So we knew we had to take that step first. So we, Two years raising support, a year in language school, and then we we moved to Ecuador. So you did really language school knowing... in,
0: in the states before moving, or
1: yeah, okay, in, in Costa Rica. Oh, in yeah, Costa, we Rica. Costa Rica. I'm sorry. Rica. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, we went there, spent a year there, mm-hmm. and then when we went to Ecuador, I remember specifically my father-in-law asking me uh, about a month before we moved. Uh I guess it was about about two months, almost two months before we moved. He said to me, he said, um, he said, "Well, I'm kind of concerned." That you're moving to Ecuador and and you don't have a house yet, you know, and because you know, you're looking out for his for his daughter. Sure. And it was funny because we didn't have an open door in the villages yet. We knew God wanted us with the Quichua people, but we didn't know how to get there and how that how that process would look. There mm-hmm. were no missionaries to contact. There was no one working here, and so in my mind, when my father-in-law asked me that, I was thinking to myself, you know, you're worried about us not having a house. I don't even have a city picked out yet. <laughs> I, I mean, we don't even we don't even know where we're going to land yet. And wow. I didn't tell him that, but we basically, about a month before we moved, we got contacted by a missionary who was just getting started in, in the capital city of Ecuador. And he said, he had heard our story. And he said, I know you you have a desire to go to the Kichwa people. You don't have an open door yet. He said, so if you want to, you can come, you can live here, you know, in our area, you can help us plant this church while you're waiting for the door to open, basically for the Kichwa people. Hmm. And so that's what we did. We moved uh, near the capital city. And we spent about two years there helping plant a church. And it was funny. The church there was actually in the richest town in all of Ecuador. It was kind of a suburb of the capital city. It's where all the lawyers and TV stars and, you know, soccer stars is where all, the, all of them lived. Mm-hmm. And so we spent our first years in Ecuador among that people. In the Los Angeles the, of Ecuador. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, And then we moved to the, the poorest of the poor after that. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so there's the, shock, the contrast.
0: You know? Yeah. Culture. Right. Shock. Right.
1: <laughs> and so we... You know, there's, so many, there's so many details to the story, but we, when we moved to that city in Ecuador, about a block down from our house, there was a, a bread store. And we walked down probably two or three times a week. We'd go down to that bread store, just get basic groceries. And we became, we became good friends with the, with the guy who owned the store. And about two years later, and I, di- I didn't know much about the guy at that point, I didn't know where he was from. But about two years later, he asked me one day if my wife would be willing to, to teach English to his children. And so I jokingly said, why don't you teach him English? Why don't you teach him English? Don't you speak two languages? And he laughed and he said, well, I do speak two languages, but I don't, I don't speak English. And so I, I was kind of confused. And I said, well, what language do you speak? And he said, well, I speak Spanish. And I said, well, you know, obviously we're speaking in Spanish. Yeah. I said, what else do you speak? He said, I speak Quechua." And my, <laughs> my jaw hit the floor and I was like. What'd you say? <laughs> like, I've got going. a
0: proposition for you. <laughs> right, exactly. I was
1: like, there's no way that you speak Quechua. And so we started talking, and there's Quechua all over Ecuador, really all throughout South America that Quechua is spoken. There's almost 50 million speakers of of some form of Quechua throughout South America. Wow. And so when he said that, I thought to myself, at first, you know, this is amazing, but he's probably from a different area of Ecuador, a different, a oh, different Quechua. sure. Yeah, God, God had called us to a very specific area. And so I asked him, I said, you know, where are you from? And he told me, he said, well, I, I'm from, and he named the, the province that he was from. It was the exact same province that God had led us to in 2000. It was 2008 when we originally surrendered to go to the Quichua people in northern Ecuador. It was 2014 when I was talking to him. Wow. And he told me, he said, I'm from this area. And so literally for six years, we had been praying. God opened the door for us to go to these Kichwa communities in this specific area and it was the exact same area where this guy was from. Wow. And so he told me he said, I'll he said, I'll take you up this weekend if you want to go. And <laughs> I told him, I said, I mean, that's great, but I wanna go right now. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> Which if I remember correct, I exactly what year you were here in our church at the missions conference. I don't remember. But I, I feel like when we met you, you were talking about your family was then making the transition from the city to uh to the village, which was pretty cool. And and to even be able to advertise that admissions conference is like, well, we've been in the country, but right now we're making the transition to the village.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. That was, I want to say it was either 2015 or 2016. I can't remember. That would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. But we, uh, yeah, from, from that one guy that he took us up into his village, God just opened doors faster than we can move through them at that point. And it, I mean, it was just like a snowball before we knew it. Uh, well, I'll just mention this this one, this one Kichwa man, he was a believer. We got in contact with him and spent about a year with him. And he was the one who originally actually told us, he said, you, you know, we've seen missionaries come and go, you know, over the years, he said, but we've never had anyone here, you know, among our people living here, learning our culture, being like us. And he said, he said, if your heart truly is to reach our people, you have to be here. Mm. You have to live here. You have to speak our language. You have to you know, live like we live so that you can understand it. And at that point, like like you mentioned, at that point, we had already been taught, go to the big cities, sure. you know, go to the big areas. And even, even a lot of missionaries who reach out and their heart really is to the smaller people groups, the majority of them are taught, live in the city and travel into the village. Mm. and he And that's what we were thinking that we were going to do at that point. But he told me. He said, "That's that's not what you need to do. You need to be here. You need to live here. You'll never really understand our people unless you're here." Mm. And it was it was through that that God began opening doors. He gave me his inheritance, and which what? was a, a plot of land, and that's where we he began. He gave building it the, to you. Yeah, just gave us gave us his inheritance, and wow. it was the only thing he had. And he told me. He said, "If he said my life is is short, he said I don't know how long the Lord gives me. He said, but with what I have, I want to use it to reach our people." Oh and my goodness. It's just unbelievable. And he became, he became my best friend. Honestly, best friend I've ever had in my entire life. And he was my, he was a year older than me. He was very young. And, and I, Kale, I'm sure, you know, Lord took him home about six months ago. Yeah. And it was, I'm going to tell you, it was the hardest thing I've ever been through, but his, his life and his testimony really is, is the story of what is happening right here in Ecuador, in here in Ecuador right now. And, and all the wonderful things in the, in the villages It's not about us. It really is about that man. His name was clever about the doors that he opened for us. Uh, yeah. It's just unbelievable how, how God used him.
0: And it's almost like, man, I don't even know what to say to that. Like that, There's almost no words how a man that, that was like the only believer you could find, God used him to not only give you an open door, but almost gave that man the foresight of like, listen, you aren't guaranteed tomorrow. We should all have that foresight that we're not right. guaranteed tomorrow. But he gave up his earthly inheritance so that you could do something of much more eternal glory. And then it ended up being that that God didn't have destined for him to live um, right. an incredibly long life. Uh, I I don't yeah. even know what to say to that. That's I mean yeah. it's emotional, but it's also the grace of God because you know we're going to meet Clever again someday in, in heaven, which is yeah, amazing. Absolutely, mm-hmm. um, man. Absolutely. So so how did you? Was was Clever uh, the the integral part that allowed you to gain acceptance like amongst the the village and those people?
1: Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, he first of all his land he had to get approval from his entire family all of his the brothers and cousins and his dad and everybody and so our first year in the village was literally our people uh, grow potatoes and corn just mm-hmm. always potatoes and corn kale if you come visit us one day you're going to eat potatoes and corn the whole time you're those here those are
0: two really <laughs> so, good foods and my my wife right. would be fine with that
1: <laughs> right yeah you'll you'll learn to love them we, but he uh we spent that first year literally planting potatoes shucking corn and just sitting down with people um where did you live and I, we we were still living in the in the capital city. Oh, and traveling. And so we tra- yeah, we would travel. It was, it was almost three hours. We'd travel wow. every every week, and we would we'd come up on Saturdays. On Sundays, we would do ministry in the capital city. Mm. On Saturdays, we would you know we would do ministry here, but it was planting potatoes. You know, what yeah. I'm saying it wasn't. Uh, we weren't planting churches. We weren't <laughs> accepted yet. Yeah. And so we actually had a pastor one time get get upset. He's like, I mean, why aren't you doing ministry out there in the villages? Sure. And. You know, my only answer was we are doing ministry. It just, it looks very different here. Well, and you were building
0: that, uh, that trust with, with the people too, and building your testimony.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that is, and that's, you know, and you hear those class, those, those things, like you were mentioning in, you know, missiology classes, you hear the importance of those things. But when I got here, I realized it's not just they're important. I mean, it's absolutely vitally necessary. You have to do that. Mm. You have to go through that process of being accepted by the people. If if you're specifically in a village type setting, I know that's yeah. extremely important. Well, and if it,
0: regardless of the setting, village versus city, if you're actually going to have a a, um, a ministry influence in the people, and you're not just going to build a church, but you're actually going to have influence in people's lives, you, um, you you have to be accepted by them. And I think the key to yeah. that is kind of what we're going to transition to here is this idea of cultural adaptation and adapting to the culture. Um, and, and so I want you to as, as you continue to tell these stories by the way, so don't you know don't shift gears completely. but as we're going there, let's let's uh, kind of hone in on the importance of missionaries to quote unquote, live like the nationals live if we're going to reach them because the the sad truth is that many missionaries, When they leave America or maybe just leave the West in general, they go to the field and they'll they'll live like Americans. They'll kind of export not just American Christianity. I don't even really mean that. I mean, just export their American uh, luxuries and uh, wealthy living, you know, lavish living to the field. And and so, you know, I kind of would like for you to speak on how that can actually hurt or hinder um, the influence of the American missionary then in the lives of those people, uh, but but you know again in the context of these stories that you're telling,
1: yeah, I gotcha. Yeah, I think um, I think you really uh, hit the nail on the head. The I think a generation ago the problem was yeah, I mean if there, if there was a an issue that kind of permeated missions, it was taking the American church to the mission field, and I think we've corrected that for for you know by and large mm-hmm. we've corrected that. We we haven't taken you know our music and our ideas and our whatever you know we haven't we've we've just we've taken our bible away and our from gospel <laughs> right, right yeah. exactly that's the that's that's the goal and i think a lot of young missionaries they're really seeing the importance of that and i, I think that's outstanding mm-hmm. uh but if there is a, a mistake now that's permeating missions today it's it's what you're mentioning it's the idea that that i can take my lifestyle you know with me there and I mean, to some extent you can, uh, you don't have to drop everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know missionaries who say we don't have internet in our house because we want to, you know, we want to drop English. We want to drop everything. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think you have to go to that extreme, but the every, nearly every country in the world, if not every single co- country in the world, if, if you get clo- if you get close enough to the big cities, you'll find an expat community, you'll find an American mm-hmm. neighborhood, you know, you'll find American schools there. In fact, the the first city where we where we helped plant that first church, there were three high schools in that city that were fully English, 100% English, uh, because it was a more affluent area, wow. and there were a lot of missionary children that went to those schools, mm-hmm. um, and that's you know, like I said, it's not a bad thing. I'm not I'm not criticizing that side of things. It really depends on. Who God has called you to, and in what area God wants you to serve in? Well, if like you God's said, you it's not reach, even
0: wrong to to let your kid go to a, an English speaking high school or or what? Right. Like you said, have internet, but like because of the year and the day and age that we live in, I think what you're getting at is like there's just there's an easier temptation once you go to the field to never actually fully adopt uh, that field, that culture, and that, that country.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's very easy, very easy. Um, and and like I said, if you if God's called you to reach maybe the upper class, for example, in a, in a larger city, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's an outstanding calling. They're one of the largest unreached people groups in the world, really, mm-hmm, it's the upper sure. class. And there's nothing wrong with living like them, and a lot of them live more like Americans. There's mm-hmm. nothing wrong necessarily with that. But specifically in, in our setting, you know, God called us to reach the poorest of the poor and to live among them and work among them. And so for us to live in an American neighborhood, an American community with American grocery stores and American <laughs> hospitals— it wasn't possible for us because it would hinder, you know, our our ability to reach our people.
0: What, oh, if you were to do that, you know, everything you just said there, which is kind of the opposite of what you would want to do, but say you were to do that because that does exist out there in the world. And, and I don't even think they have ill intentions. I just think that, They don't they don't know better or they get to the field and they're, you know, they're just like, well, I'm just going to live my life and I'm still going to try to reach people. But if you were to do all that, you know, I'm going to reach these village people, but, you know, live my American life or build kind of an American compound around my family. um, What what does that do to the people's view of you? Like like how does that actually hinder your ministry to them and your influence?
1: Right. That's a good question. I, I think I can speak specifically to to our people into what we've seen and dealt with here, mm-hmm. our, there's a lot of disadvantages, but one of the, one of the big disadvantages is that the, the third world and poor people groups around the world, they've become very accustomed to humanitarian aid. Ah. And they're, they're used to the idea of like mission teams, but not necessarily from churches. You know, mm-hmm. we've, like, we've had groups come to our village from all over the world, not, not Christians, but people just show up, you know, cause they want to, you know, they want to help the needy, you know, with yeah. that idea. You don't and have so to be a Christian
0: to do humanitarian stuff. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Right, right, exactly. There's there's a lot of that that goes on. And so our people are very accustomed to that. You know, they when they saw me as a as a foreigner, it wasn't weird. They'd seen foreigners before. Mm-hmm. You know, foreigners had shown up and, and done things for them. Yeah. And so one of the one of the reasons why you you need to adapt to the culture and if possible live among the people wherever God has, you know, called you to, is that you need to make that break. That you're not that group of people. You're not the group of people who just shows up, mm. does something, and then leaves. Sure. Because if you're that, the people will always view you as someone who basically comes in to save the day. You come in with a lot of money. You mm. come in, you offer some teaching, but in the at the end of the day, you always leave. You always go back to what they've seen, like in movies and on the internet and things like that. Mm. You know, that's you go back to that rich, um, you know, comfortable lifestyle. While they stay back here and they suffer and they'll always look at you as someone who never fully understands who they are. So there's that disconnect is the disconnect. Yeah. You're always someone else. You're always that group. Mm -hmm. You know, you just came to help, but then you left and you never really knew who we, who we were. And so in the end, all the people will want from you as a missionary is whatever they can get from you, whatever they can get out of you. And I don't mean that to, to cut down the people, but it's, that's what they're used to. You know, if you're going to come and you're going to bring money, We'll They're gonna it. listen to your teaching. Yeah. They're just gonna bring the money. They're just gonna accept the money. That's all sure. they want. Um, whereas when you come and you stay, and you learn the culture, you begin to, you know, adapt yourself not only to their language but to their accent. You know, mm-hmm. you learn their phrases. You learn the. You learn what makes them laugh. You learn what makes them cry. You know, when you spend time with them, in that kind of way, in, in intimate ways like that. Uh, it changes everything. You become one of them. You become their brother instead of the guy who kind of showed up to save the day.
0: That's, yeah, man, that's, that's an awesome point. And, and to the, even the contrast side of it, it's not like you're saying, okay, go to the field and pretend you're not an American because they're those people, they're not stupid. Like they're going to look at you almost (laughs) like, what are you doing? Like you're (laughs) like, if you're just, you know, that guy that's like, well, you know, I'm not an American and I'm going to do this and this. And they're not dumb. That might almost have an adverse effect too of like, well, oh, yeah. are, are you that's, just that's like offensive. mocking us or? <laughs>
1: right, right. That's, that's very offensive. Even for our people, we've seen that several times and I, uh, and I use it as a constant way of, of making people smile. <laughs> just laughing with people, you know the mistakes that I make because I'm the foreigner. I, mm-hmm. I point that out all the time, and so that that's extremely important.
0: So, what is the difference? Is it just your intention? What what's the difference between going and you know too much to one side of where you're you're you know taking on their culture in a way that's almost offensive and and mocking because you're disregarding your American heritage completely what's the difference between that and and going and being interested in their culture and and adapting to the way they live with the desire to influence and reach them with the gospel
1: um there's a few ways i think uh one of the ways is thinking about the the home that you live in if if god allows you to move into a village which is what he permitted us to i'll speak directly to that there's a lot of people who live in mud homes in our area Mm -hmm. uh but just recently, people have started building brick homes. It's basically the same idea, except that the mud bricks are baked instead of, you know, instead of just raw. Mm-hmm. And so Clever, who helped us, he's the one who really helped us understand the culture. He, I asked him at the beginning, should we build a mud house so that w- our house would look like you mm-hmm. know, the other people's? And he told me immediately, absolutely not. He said, these people know that you're an American. They know that you have more money to them. And it would be offensive to them. It would almost be a slap in the face to say, I'm going to come and live like you. Uh-huh. Because you know you're so you're so down, and I want to suffer like you suffer. He said that that doesn't look good to us. It's like a condescending
0: said, you know, tone, almost.
1: It's it's condescending, yeah. And and he was the one. I mean, he was a Kichwa man who he, sure. he he told me that just he had that perspective that it you know there's there's limitations, but don't build a mud house. You know, build something <laughs> decent. Is, was the idea. But then you didn't and also so,
0: build an you know, American drywall mansion that <laughs> import exactly, all the materials. Right. <laughs>
1: right yeah we didn't do that either you know we built as much as we could as to be a, a decent home but something that doesn't look weird you, know, you would never drive through the village and say oh that's obviously the the foreigner's house
0: mm. gotcha it you were i think you said that there were some uh some other things or was that the main point that you were getting at was like how you live in the home and
1: right yeah how you how you live in the home is probably the the most important mm-hmm. um and then uh just one of the other ways too you can kind of continue that idea that, that you're the foreigner, but you're willing to get to know the people is that a lot of times I, I take the opportunity to teach people about, uh, my culture. Now I don't, I don't want that come across the wrong way. I don't, I don't beat people over the head with it. I don't preach about it. I don't like, we don't give English classes. We don't do anything like that mm-hmm. because we don't want to change the culture that's here. Uh, but we use opportunities to simply say, Oh yeah, you know, in our culture, we do something similar to that. Or you know, here's something funny you could say in English. We'll say, you know just teach them a funny phrase. Just little things like that, Sure. so that they understand we are a foreigner, but at the same time we're trying to connect to them. We're not trying to make them Americans. We're just trying to connect to them and understand you know who they are and that we're not that much different than them.
0: Mm. That's awesome. Uh, would you say that uh, learning their language is uh, is an important key to to learning the culture and and that adaptation?
1: Oh, it's, it's vital. Mm-hmm. Vital. Absolutely vital. Um, in fact, I don't know that there's anything more important than that. That's mm-hmm. the that's the basic, you know, building stone to be able to reach a culture. Uh, we, we're we in an interesting situation, and I think a lot of missionaries are going to start dealing with this. You know, a generation or two ago, the, there was no question. If If God called you to a remote people group, you went there, you lived among the people, you learned that language, even though there was no book, there was no teaching, there was nothing. You just found a way to learn that language because you were completely immersed in that. Mm-hmm. Um, the world is changing very rapidly because of internet. And so we're here in, a, in, a, in an Indian village where people have spoken Kichwa literally for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden, just in this generation, because of internet, because of schools, Spanish is infiltrating even here into the villages. Mm-hmm. And so our people you know, speak Kichwa. Uh, everybody from 30 and above, Kichwa is their first language. But there's been such a drastic change where every teenager that we deal with and every child that we deal with, um, they only speak Spanish. I mean, literally, they have completely gotten away from Quechua because of the fact that Quechua is, is looked down upon. as very, very uh, racist type idea that they are the, they're the poor and they're the dumb, the ones who speak Quechua. And so there's this shift away from Quechua. And it's happening very, very fast. It's happening right now while we're here. And so we have to, as a missionary, you have to balance that. You have to see the importance for the older generation in their language, you know. And then at the same time, you have to understand that when a teenager, for example, if a teenager were to hear me speaking Quechua, he would be he would be embarrassed that I would that I as a foreigner would speak hmm. his language that embarrasses him. And so there, it's it's a it's a very very fine line. You have to be very very careful how you how you how you handle that. But in the end. You have to know the language of the people. Whatever is the most common language of the people, you have to speak it, and you have to speak it well.
0: Yeah, well, because you can't—you can learn some aspects of culture, I think, without learning a language, but you can't learn how people think. You can't learn their uh, idiosyncrasies. You can't learn their cultural references unless you understand their idioms and, and things like that. And, um, you know, someone listening to this who's not a missionary might think it's even crazy to suggest that someone would go to the field and not learn the language, but that's very common. Very common, Did more common than you would think. And um, and um like you said there, the temptation now in this day and age, especially if you go to a big city, English is an international language, and you can find either an expat uh, area of the city or just uh, the temptation to only ever do ministry in English because you can always find young people who speak English to some degree. And you could certainly yeah. do ministry in English, but it does hinder your ability to relate to the people on a different level. Um, if you don't learn their heart language, I guess is what a lot of people would call it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're 100% right. I have a, a friend of mine, he just retired from, from missions and his name was, uh, Ernie Brown. He actually lives not far from where you live. He really, I don't remember the name of the town where he's in. I think it's less than an hour from, from new Philadelphia. Um, but man, he just, he just had a great heart. I've, I've never met a missionary with such a, such a love and such a heart for his people. And he was here in Ecuador. He was with a Kichwa group that was a couple hours away from where we are. And he he was funny. I I don't know if Ernie would ever hear this. I don't want to offend him, but Ernie, he, he never learned Kichwa. He was here for 20 something years, never learned Kichwa. And his Spanish was just a train wreck. I mean, just, I mean, I love the guy to death. And my Spanish is terrible. I'm I'm not trying to make mine sound good, but he, I mean, he was just an absolute train wreck. But he loved his people, unlike any missionary I've ever met in my life. And when I was with him, with his people, I would hear him speak Spanish and I would have no clue what he was talking about. And I'm thinking to myself, I I can't even understand you. And these guys who are Quechua speakers, they're trying their best to understand his Spanish. But like there was there was no disconnect. They loved him so much and they learned from him. He taught them the Bible. He planted churches. He did so much work. And so he at least tried. You know, even though it, you know, it was difficult for him. He at least tried, and you have to make that kind of effort, and you have to love your people in that kind of way.
0: That's a really good point um, in this in this uh, uh, context of cultural adaptation, because we're not going to nail everything. Not everybody is going to learn a language like well and be incredibly fluent, and like, you know, I I think everybody has this romanticized dream of like being mistaken for you know, a person in that country, like, okay, you know, maybe like I I'm going to Europe, I'm going to Hungary. My family is Hungarian. So maybe if I get really good at Hungarian and someone just sees me, maybe they'll mistake me, but come on, if you're, if you're going to Africa, if you're going to South America, they're going to know you're an American. So it, right. that effort is so important because they see you trying. I've even seen it when I go to Hungary and I'm trying to learn nuances and, and I mess up and they laugh. But you can tell that they 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 respect the effort and because they, they know their language is hard and they know it's hard for you yeah. because you're an American. But that effort goes such a long way, wouldn't you say?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. That's the most important thing. They're they're gonna know. They're gonna see. And if you show up, and I don't, I know there's missionaries maybe who don't have another choice. And so I don't want to, you know, I want to cut anybody down. But sure. the if you show up and you never try, you never try to learn the language, and you never everywhere you go, you just take a translator with you. Um, and and obviously sometimes you have to do that because some missionaries deal with cultures where there's a lot of different languages. Sure. But if you never put forth that effort, the people are going to know, and there's always going to be that disconnect. He's, he's not one of us.
0: Wow. Yeah. Which, like we said, isn't, uh, it's not inherently wrong, but it will hinder, uh, the effectiveness maybe of your influence in ministry. Um, that's Mm -hmm. awesome. You know, I'd be remiss when we're talking about cultural adaptation, I'd be remiss to not go to first Corinthians nine and, uh, just read, uh, the passage that, uh, Paul, talks about, um, that, you know, in a missions class or in a mission sermon where you're talking about living as the nationals do for the sake of, uh, influence for the gospel. Um, if you don't mind, Will, I'm just going to read 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 19 through 22. Um, and then maybe we can just speak a little bit, you know, just even biblically what Paul, uh, was advocating here, uh, on this level. Um, so, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, starting in 19, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. Under the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak that I might gain the weak. I am made, and here here's the kicker. This is kind of where everybody always quotes. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And uh, I, mm-hmm. I really think that's kind of the biblical mandate to be willing to lay down our liberty and lay down even our culture if we're going to go to the field uh, to to mm-hmm. to gain these brothers in Christ because I'm willing to, uh, to lay down some things that I might save some. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely, I think the uh, you're you're absolutely right. If you look at Paul's missionary life and even even the life of Jesus Christ, you you understand and you have to see the fact that the call to missions is a call to sacrifice. It's a call to to suffering in a lot of ways, and you you have to know that from the beginning. And I think and I don't think mission agencies have in mission books and classes and things. I don't think they've intended to to cause this this problem, but a lot of times the idea is. We we want to help missionary attrition. We want to we want to keep missionaries on the field, so we need to protect them. And so let's let's find them a protected home. Let's find them a protected neighborhood, and let's shelter them from, you know, a lot of the issues that that cause missionary attrition. And I think that I, I guess in some ways you have to do that. But in the end, you have to go back to the biblical example, and it is a life of sacrifice and it's a life of suffering. And you have to be willing to do that from day one. You have to know that you're stepping into that life uh, to be able to follow Paul's example.
0: And So would you say it's less about the – the hard conditions on a mission field should be – you should just assume that. So is it more about just the willingness on the front end and even the commitment on the front end that that, uh, if if you don't have that settled in your heart before you go, that lends itself to people leaving the field when they face the inevitable hardships?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I think it is. I think think on one hand the missionary himself sometimes uh, goes to the field unprepared not realizing what he's getting into Mm -hmm. and i think even sometimes uh you know as churches and and books and classes and things we sometimes we we're careful we don't want to talk about the bad and Mm -hmm. so we only talk about the good Mm -hmm. and it and i guess that's that's important for example you, you go to the field for 10 years and and god has done things that you that just blows you away and you go to a church to tell them about those 10 years and you have five minutes you know, and just like, yeah, you, you, so you highlight the, the good bad. things, <laughs> right? You highlight the good. And so, sure. if you grow up in a church, you, you just hear that over and over the mission field is wonderful, the mission field is a blessing, and, and all these wonderful things. And it is, but then when you get to the field and you realize, oh my goodness, this is a lot harder mm. than I ever imagined um, I think that causes a lot of missionary attrition because they don't don't realize what they're getting into. Mm. And so I think it is important to understand that sacrifice from the very beginning.
0: And it's those joys on the mission field that make the mission feel so great that make it, uh, that make it you able to handle the hardships. It's not that the hardships don't exist. It's just that it's worth it because of the ultimate joy of seeing those people come to the Lord.
1: Oh, it is. Yeah, absolutely. About six months ago when, uh, when the Lord took took uh, Clever home. I remember, you know, the, just the pain of going through that watching someone die in a third world country is, is not an experience anyone would <laughs> ever want to go through. Um, but as, as deep as that Valley was and as painful as, as that was having all of the wonderful memories and all of the incredible things that God did through Clever to open the door here in the villages. Um, like you said, it, it, it balances it out. It's what keeps us going on the field because it's like on the mission field, the the blessings are unbelievably huge, mm-hmm. but the, at the same time the valleys are unbelievably deep, and so it's this it's just this extreme roller coaster of a life, and, and but you have to know that you know going into it,
0: mm-hmm. which I mean really, if if we're just going to be honest, that that's what the Lord calls us to when we get saved, period. Whether you want to yeah. be a career missionary or not, you know, he says, you know, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself daily, take or let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. So it's not like right. only missionaries are called to suffer. Uh, we all Absolutely. are, but maybe sometimes in America, uh, it's easier to not allow ourselves to because of the comforts that are available to us. Um mm-hmm. You're right. would you be willing to speak uh just to the some of the practical hardships, uh, that's been on you and your family, um, with this idea of I'm going to live in the village and I'm going to adapt to the culture. Um, you know, you have children, a couple of y- younger children and, uh, and your wife, yeah. obviously. And like you said, it's not all, you know, rainbows and unicorns sometimes, man, it's, it, it can be <laughs> hard. Uh, would you be, would you mind speaking to some of those hardships and how, how maybe you guys have, uh, came through that, uh, together as a family?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, for my wife, we when we started this this whole process, you know, we we knew what we were going into. We knew, to some extent, you know, what it was going to look like. We had a lot of veteran missionaries that really helped us in that process. And I remember specifically when we were raising support, my wife told me she said, you know, if, if we could just have a washing machine, that would that wouldn't mean a lot to me, you know, and that was just one of the things that was just for her, you know, it was important. Sure. And doesn't sound and like a high maintenance lady,
0: by the way, if, if her one request is just right. a washing machine, that sounds like a good woman. There. <laughs> Man, she's good. i tell you what, I have
1: definitely married up. We, um, when we, it's funny, we, you know, we down here in the village now and we live here. We've been here for a few years now living here in the village and we have a washing machine. We even have a dryer, you know, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> wow. And God's provided, you know, refrigerator, uh, stove. We don't have dirt floors, uh, God has allowed us to live in a in a in a beautiful home, and so the Lord has used this home really to to protect us from some of the frustrations because uh, living in a village never ends. It, it it is always you're always hit in the face, you know, with living in the village. Uh, one of the things is that we in our village in all the villages in this area they make uh, announcements over a loudspeaker so that the whole village can hear it. And I mean every morning, five o'clock in the morning, they're screaming over the loudspeaker. Oh wow. And it's just this reminder every single day that we are somewhere where we don't belong. Right. Like you live we, on uh, a
0: military compound, they just say hey, morning yeah. announcements for the entire village. Yeah, uh, basically, yeah. That's basically the idea. Right.
1: <laughs> and it's I mean, just the other day they were hollering because somebody, you know, a cow got loose and they didn't know whose cow it was. <laughs> and so they were hollering. Everybody come down, come see if this is your cow. And it's, <laughs> it's simple things like that. Yeah. But it
0: reminds <laughs> you that like I'm not from here. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Right, exactly. And we, we had a, med- a veteran missionary help us one time and it, it, it's been so helpful to us through the through the years. And they said it's it's not just that one frustrating thing happens. He she said, because you know, there's frustrating things no matter where you live in the world. But when you go to the mission field, what you'll realize is that by ten o'clock in the morning, if you're trying to accomplish something, you know, about ten to fifteen frustrating things have already happened by ten <laughs> o'clock in the morning. And it's just and it's it's just all day long you're not from here you're not from this culture you don't speak this language and it's just it's just saying trying to just get you down which can be really and, defeating. Uh, yeah right it really is it really is and it just wears on you over time uh but being here in the village we have found ways to to number one reach out to people in in a friendship kind of way you know to work hard to have friends as i mentioned clever he was literally the closest friend i've ever had and his his wife his his widow lives here right beside us now mm-hmm. and um his, uh, you know, his children are very close to my children, uh, very, very close friendships. It's very important to have those friendships, mm. and I think one of the things we've also learned is the the blessing of having uh, internet, you know, ways to communicate with family and friends in the states and other, you know, missionaries around the world, because we're the only we're the only missionaries, obviously, in this area, and we're the only foreigners anywhere around here, and so. If there's a problem, there's an issue, everybody always, you know, they, they look to us, they come to us. And that's a blessing spiritually. But every now and then you need someone to, to bless you spiritually, you uh-huh. know, to, to help you, to talk to you, to ask you how you're doing. And so uh, proactively trying to keep um, communication with family and friends has been extremely helpful to us in the village.
0: Hmm. That's awesome. Um, what about even just like with uh, how young were your kids when, when you went to the field?
1: Um, let's see. My youngest son was two months old and the oldest one was, he was three. Wow. Yeah. So they, they
0: they don't, so that may have been more difficult for you, but they don't really know a difference between, you know, Obviously, they've been to the states several times, but you know, being in several different countries, it's like that's that's kind of what they've been used to since they were born. So it's not like they're man. I wish we would go back to America. I wish I had my iPhone kind of a thing.
1: (laughs) Right? No. Yeah. No. We don't deal with that. (laughs) But
0: you know, on on the the other hand, if we could just talk to uh, you know, I a lot of different people are listening to this podcast and, you know, whether they're pastors or prospective missionaries or just church members, um, it, we could speak to the husbands for a second. You know, you take your wife to the field. She's your partner in ministry, of course. Um, but you also, it's easy, I think for men to get caught up in the work because ministry is work and it, and it drains you and it, it drains you more than even a, a secular nine to five job would. Um, wh- what have you done or what, or what should we do? What advice would you give to husbands to make sure that, um, your wife isn't draining and you're, you're ignoring that. And you, you know, you kind of making sure that you guys are on the same page and that, uh, her walk with the Lord is going well as well.
1: Yeah. That's a, that's a very, very important question. It's very important to remember that you are not married to your ministry. You are married to your wife Mm, and God allowed you to choose her before he allowed you to choose that mission field for the most part. (laughs) Sure. Typically, not always, but, um, and so, unless you unless to, you
0: marry a national like like Jeff did, Jeff right married uh, he got? It. Jeff, when I said that, I was like, well, not always. <laughs> well, the exception proves the rule. You're right. You're right. right,
1: right. <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, you have to keep that in mind. And I think the the number one way to help you with that is that before you go to the mission field, you have to destroy the idea in your mind that God has called you to produce numbers. Mm-hmm. You have to completely get rid of that that idea, that notion. God has not called you to win every soul in the entire country. God has not called you to plant a hundred churches in your first year. You have to eliminate those ideas. You know, look at the examples of Ezekiel and look at the examples of of Isaiah. God called these men to something that was not huge and glamorous in in man's eyes. You know, he called them to something that was very included suffering. It included very small numbers. And that's very important to remember when you go to the mission field, because if you go thinking, I've got to make sure I have, you know, three indigenous churches in the first month. You know, I've got to do all these crazy things and we let those numbers affect how we do ministry. The first person that's going to get pushed off of our radar will be our wife because we think she, she's OK. She's got it. You know, she understands how important the spiritual aspect of things is. And she'll so she'll let me, you know, do whatever I need to do in ministry. And I can sure. I can set her off to the side. And that's the number one way to destroy your ministry, destroy your family. Uh, you have to put her first. You have to destroy the concept of numbers in your mind, and you know meet her needs, whatever whatever she needs. Be willing to listen to her, um, even if it may look like a hindrance in ministry in your eyes. You have to say, "Oh well, well, she's my first ministry," and and I have to, and I have to be willing to
0: put her first. Sure, and 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 even just would you say just communication is important? As you know, any guy who's been married for a minute maybe has learned. <laughs> learning to communicate with your wife is very important, but how much more okay. so on the field?
1: Yeah, yeah, d- definitely very, very important. And I think more than anything, you have to learn to to listen to her, and you have to be willing to reiterate to her over and over and over again that your, import- your opinion matters, that mm. you are important. I want to know what you're thinking. I want to know what your opinion is in, in what we're dealing with and what we're facing because I promise you the mission field is a lot harder for the, for the wife or the lady than it is for the husband in general. That's uh, that's something that, that they deal with that we don't deal with as much.
0: Wow. Amen, man. That's so good. It, you know, as we kind of wind this down, um, do you have any advice kind of going back to our, our main subject there, the, uh, cultural adaptation do you have any advice uh, for those listening prospective missionaries or even missionaries on the field um, who are like man i need to kind of evolve the way i'm living life do you have any advice on wisely adapting to the culture in in a way that's behooving to the gospel and not just forsaking you know personal holiness in the name of fitting in because you know sometimes we use this word culture like uh um like it's culture is in a way amoral Unless it's not, though, because some culture <laughs> is downright sinful, you know, and it's, and it's against God. So how can you do that in a wise way that behooves the gospel and isn't just forsaking personal holiness in the name of fitting in? Because after all, the Bible tells us we're to be in the world, but not of it. So there, there has to be a balancing factor, wouldn't you say?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right. I think that one of the things that has helped us the most in regards to the gospel and spiritually adapting to the culture— has been the aspect of discipleship. Mm-hmm. And I, I think if, if we go to the mission field focused on numbers, one of the other things that we tend to forget about is the is the aspect of discipleship uh, because discipleship is, is slow and it's messy and it, you know, it's, it's frustrating at times. But when we take the time to focus on discipleship, like in, in our setting, where Gus called us to a very specific uh, people group in a very specific type setting, our house is full, of course, not recently because of the, the virus and the issues that are going on. But in general, our house is full of Quechua people who we are pouring ourselves into in discipleship, just life on life, intentional discipleship. And we have small groups that come. We have several individuals that come. And we spend our life doing that. I have learned more about the culture and how to adapt to the culture and how to spiritually speak into the culture from discipleship than any other thing. Hmm. I mean, you can, you can show up in a village and, and say, hey, this foreigner's here to preach, and you can preach the gospel faithfully, and, and maybe the whole village will come out and hear you. And that's, that's effective with, within a certain context. But if you go back to that village and you'll say, hey, sit down with me every week, let's sit down and spend a couple hours together, that will completely change your ministry. It will completely change how you spiritually influence that person and how you let the Word of God speak into their culture. And so it's not just me trying to figure out all the nuances of this culture. It's me saying, hey, here's the truth of the Word. Here's how this applies to your life, and they start making the connections of the culture, and they share those connections with me, and it helps me learn, and it helps them grow in their spiritual life.
0: Oh, that's really good. I mean that almost even gets into the nuance of what is the Great Commission. Is it simply just going and telling as many people about the gospel as possible, or is there this essence of making disciples of all nations, not just simply going and making a bunch of babies and not raising them? but reproducing sons of God and then raising them to spiritual maturity so they can do likewise. Um, Man, that's amazing. (laughs) You've been such a good interview. Uh, You know, if you're listening out here, you're a pastor, you go to a church and, and uh, you're, you're listening to this guy, Will Lyon. And, you know, he's in a village. He's been there for, he's been in Ecuador for 10 years. He's, he lives in this village among the people making disciples, reaching uh, a people group that was, previously unreached how could you not support this guy I mean if you got missions budget you you need you need to support will lyon uh sorry maybe, maybe I'm being too candid but uh will if there's someone who wants to just know more about you or your ministry and what you're doing do you got, do you guys have a website or anything or an email or something they could get a hold of you
1: uh yeah a guy just recently just putting together a, a website for us it's uh, reaching ten org. all all letters all letters all spelled out yeah or else is at 10 thousand feet that's why we reaching dot org. yeah Reach,
0: reaching10,000.org, and you can find more about uh, Will Lyon and his ministry to the Quichua people in northern Ecuador. Will, thank you so much for this, man. It's been a it's been a blessing for me. I know it's been a blessing for those listening.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Well, there you go. Um, another missionary conversation talking about some of the key aspects and importance of uh, doing foreign missions as an American or a Westerner, or really as any foreigner going to an- another culture that is foreign to them, um, language obviously is key, uh, a key aspect, but um, maybe the biggest thing we can glean from Will's testimony and his stories, um, and comparing that with scripture, is just the willingness of our heart to lay down our preferences, our luxuries, um, and be willing to take on the the new culture. You know, it's in in the year twenty twenty. Anywhere you go, um, there's going to be cities where there's uh, Western technology. So it's not it's not like saying like you know, back during the 17 and 1800s, like I'm going to get on a boat and, uh, I'll never see my family again. And I, you know, I'm going to live amongst, uh, tribal people like, you know, that might, that might still occur in some places in the world, but chances are, if you, if you're worried about, um, some of those things and being a missionary today, man, it's, it's a lot easier to be a missionary today than it was two or 300 years ago. And, uh, and the temptation is also there to completely take our American or Western mindset and culture with us. And so we just have to have a heart and a willingness and a desire to lay that all at the foot of the cross and say, Lord, I, I will do whatever you want me to do and go wherever you want me to go. And when I go there, I'm not just going to go half-heartedly. I'm going to go all in and uh, really seek to reach the people that are there by uh, learning their culture and, and living as they live. Um, not in a condescending way, but in a way that is relatable, so that I can understand them and how they think, and and why they think the way they think, so that I can reach them with the gospel of Christ. I hope that was beneficial to you and encouraging, uh, and that you learned something. Thank you guys for listening. We will see you back next week. God bless. Thanks for listening. Please rate and subscribe, and share us on social media. Also, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Theology Roundtable, at theologyroundtable.com.